Thank you, Gabby. All right. Let me read to you from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This has been the, the, the anchor text for our series that we've been in for the last little while. Let us run the race that has been set before us. Um, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses around us, I say this every week, but just to catch you up in case you're new, the great cloud of witnesses are uh, the saints of old, uh, Hillary actually mentioned it this morning, wherever she went. Um, there, there, are, there she is. The saints of old, the ancients, who also, uh, in their own ways, in their own generation, trusted God. And God did incredible things in their lives, through their lives. And we're a part of that. So the, the idea of the series is like, well, let's consider the great cloud of witnesses. Let's consider them and their stories and, and how we might glean from them, ultimately realizing that all of their stories, like ours, point to the author and the perfecter, the founder, the beginner and the finisher of our faith. That is Jesus, who has gone before us. This week, we're going to look at the story of Gideon. You guys know about Gideon? A little bit? No? Okay, good. Gideon's kind of one of those, like, uh, yeah, I think I remember, uh, like, in Sunday school when I was five, hearing the story of Gideon, um, but don't quite remember the details of it. That's who we're going to be looking at this morning. Let me ask you another question. Have you ever heard of the term bonking? Bonking. Okay, of course, the guy who runs marathons raises his hand. Uh, bonking. I, this is a word that I just learned about two weeks ago. Anyone else run marathons in the room? Now's your moment. Like, if I ran marathons, I guarantee you I'd be slipping that into conversation all the time. Like the one time I did it. No, I've never run a marathon. Okay, so here's, here's what it is. Adam Lazenby, he's been uh, racing mountain bikes. He explained to me the bonking is what happens to your body when basically you like hit the wall. Like you've, you've, you've basically like reached the utter threshold of what your body's physically capable of. Am I getting it right, Matt? Some, something like that? Yeah. Um, and it's not just like, oh, I have a side cramp. I need, to, I need to walk. It's like you're literally like take another step and you might black out and face plant. It's like you're, you are hitting the wall. Yeah? This is something I'm hoping to avoid for the rest of my life. I don't want to bonk. Um, except that this race that has been set before us, this endurance race, um, I, I think there's an obvious like, analogy, right? This is not for the faint of heart. Jesus calls us to follow him in this quote-unquote race that will consistently lead us to the end of ourselves. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you must learn how to lay down your life, take up your cross, die to self, and receive new life for me. And there's a lot of different metaphors that he uses, the race being one of them. Um, 
Of course, if you do, apparently, I've been told that if you, if you are training to run a marathon or an ultra marathon or some god-awful thing that you're subjecting your body to, eventually you have to be able to get past that point. And, and that obviously requires training and a lot of mental stamina. And I think for us as followers of Jesus, he, he's, he's leading us on that kind of a journey. We are runners in training. And occasionally you might find yourself in a situation in life where you want to trust God. You want to follow Jesus. You desire to honor him with your life and all of the various challenges that come with life. But you're going to hit the wall. You're going to realize this is, this is difficult. This is hard. God is faithful, and ultimately it's by his grace. He supplies the energy. But my goodness, this is a race nonetheless. And so what we're going to look at this morning, to bring us back to Gideon, is the story of a man who quite quickly came to the end of himself, and yet God was faithful. If you want to subtitle my sermon this morning, it is The Making of Greatness. So let's look at the story of Gideon. The words will be on the screen. We're going to read just an excerpt from the book of Judges. This is where we find the story of the man named Gideon. A bit of context, and then we'll look at Judges chapter 6. At this point in the history of Israel, God's people, the people that he had set free from slavery, led out of Egypt across the Jordan. They finally entered the promised land, and now they're, they're in it. They're, they're experiencing the fulfillment of God's promises uh, to them and ultimately to Abraham. It's kind of where it all started. Um, it was only a matter of decades before God's people um, kind of relapsed, as it were. They began to um, bonk. Let's put it that way. And uh, it was not going well for them. In fact, they actually started to worship some of the, the, the gods of the very people that, that they were supposed to um, bring God's kingdom into. Uh, other, other gods, other idols, as it were. And so they're in this land. They're beginning to, to not do well, just to put it simply. And the result is... They're beginning to become enslaved again. And the very land they were supposed to experience God's blessings and freedom. And so here they are being oppressed by this other um, group of people called the Midianites. And this is what it says starting in Judges chapter 6 verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came... And sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned and said to him, 
Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as if they were one man. Father, would you help us as we consider these words, your word, um, Help us to see the way that you were faithful in Gideon's life and in his generation and the way we might trust you um, in our lives and in our generation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's the story of Gideon's faith. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And Gideon said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, the, my clan is the weakest, and I'm the least in my father's house. This is where the story begins. Gideon, who's threshing wheat in an underground wine press to hide it from the Midianites, because apparently every time God's people, guys like Gideon and his family, would produce a crop or, or raise up some farm animals or whatever it might be, the Midianites would come and just devour everything. They were, they were, they were living in oppression. So he's hiding out in this underground wine press, trying to uh, eke by an existence, harvest some wheat, hopefully in secret, that the Midianites won't find it and come take it away again. And in that place, the angel of the Lord appears and says... Oh, mighty man of valor. He said, well, first he says, the Lord be, is with you. Oh, mighty man of valor, go and confront these oppressors and deliver Israel from the hand of the Midianites. When I uh, first became a Christian, so Gabby, you mentioned that we have a special focus on reaching uh, the university campus students. Um, and that's true. That's not like our sole focus as a church family, but that's um, part of our, our mission. We want to um, yeah, engage with students about the gospel, what they believe about Jesus. I was a student once upon a time at Cal State University Long Beach, and I found myself sitting in a little, little meeting, probably about this size. It wasn't on a Sunday morning, it was on a Wednesday evening. And uh, there was a guy standing on a little stage like I'm doing now, rambling on, oh, preaching about Jesus. And he said a few things. He said quite a few things, but only a couple of things that I remember vividly. One of them was, God has a plan for your life, which is a super, super cliche thing to say. Uh, totally true, don't get me wrong, um, but I had heard it a thousand times before. God loves you and has a plan for your life. And I don't know if you've ever been in one of these moments where it's like the thing you've heard a thousand times all of a sudden is the thing you're hearing for the very first time. Like, oh yeah, I grew up in church. I, I've heard this before. God loves me. Yeah. Okay, great. Good for him. And he has a plan for your life. Well, of course he does. I'm totally awesome. Like, why wouldn't he? And then in a moment, I'm like, oh, God, 
God loves me. And he has a plan for my life. And it was as if the Spirit of God took those words and, and like enlivened them, made, made me to hear them for the very first time. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. But I felt that in a moment. I'm like, man, God loves me. And it was like this mixture, it was this emotional mixture of like heaviness and like hope all at the same time. Like God loves me, his plan for my life. I'm pretty sure I'm not fulfilling his plan. I'm fulfilling my plan. And my plan, I'm not sure if it's the best plan. So I realized, man, if God loves me, he has a plan for my life. Like, that would be fantastic. I would love to experience that. I would love to. And then all of a sudden I realized, well, I've got to, I'm going to have to make a choice. Like, I'm going I'm to have to, like, course correct in a pretty radical way. But the whole bit about God as a plan for your life, man, it just grabbed a hold of me. And then I thought to myself, well, how the heck is that going to work out? Because, in fact, deep down, uh, I'm not super awesome. I've never seen myself as like, you know, I'm, I'm not the, the, the class president. I'm not the, the homecoming whatever. I'm not the, the sports guy. I, what, what, I... I've always been slightly awkward. I've always slouched. Um, I've never been the best looking. I've never been like any of the things. And you're thinking like, no, shh, hush. Yeah. <clears throat> Until Jesus got a hold of me and now look at me. <clears throat> so I relate with Gideon. That's my point. God has a plan for my life? Really? Really? Me? The weakest and the least? Come on. Surely that's just like spiritual hype. God has a plan for my life. He wants to do something great through my life? How is that going to work? Do I not send you? Go. You mighty, handsome man. You charismatic leader. Go. See what I do. Really? Really? Me? Hmm. I'm going to need a sign. I'm going to need confirmation. And this is where the story goes next. If you know the story, if we were to keep reading, which I encourage you to do. It's a, it's a fantastic story. Find a kid to read it to. It's, it's, it's an epic God meets Gideon in a wine press, and God meets us in our places of fear and shame. Yeah, this is, this is how we connect with the story. And maybe, look, maybe you're like, all I've ever known is popularity and success and charisma and all the things. I was the class president. Good on you. Awesome. But I guarantee you, you're just as insecure as I am. And you've got your wine press moments. And you are familiar, just as familiar as I am with the feeling of the least and the weakest. And you know fear and shame. And this is where God meets us again and again and again and again in our place of fear and shame. And then he begins to speak to us as if he sees something we can't see in the mirror. You're great. You're awesome. You're mighty. I have a plan for your life. Trust me. Do I not send you? 
and we begin to experience this sort of um, this moment with God. Gideon's response, utter disbelief and what I call signage dependency. All throughout the story of Gideon, he needs a sign after sign after sign after sign. And God is so gracious. He goes along with it over and over. I don't know if it's great that Gideon needed so many signs. God is really gracious to work with him. Utter disbelief and signage dependency. I'm too weak, not me, no way. Gideon's problem was not the Midianites. It was um, something happening in his own inner being. It was fear. It was shame. It was, it was the fact that his entire life, he had been conditioned to see himself, to believe that he was nothing. That living under the weight of Midianite oppression was his reality. What's his destiny? This is what he had always known. This is the way life was going to be. It was a generational phenomenon. This, is, this, is, this was his problem. It was something happening in his, in his inner being. It was his own fear, dare I say, even his shame. And so what does God do? What does God do? What does God do? Let me, before we go there, because it's such a good story, we've got to let the tension build a little bit, but let me ask you this. What's your greatest fear? What is the thing that causes you to feel the weight of shame in your life? I remember, this is, this is, this is a good one. Got some, some smiles out there like, oh, you're thinking of it. I remember before we planted this church, I was at Grace City in Corvallis. You guys remember Adrian Crawford? Big, big, big black dude. He's come here a couple of times. He used to play NBA basketball, and now he lives out in Florida. So he, he comes and he'll preach for us. He's done it a couple of times, so we'll keep having him back. Anyways, I was in Corvallis, and Adrian was there preaching. And uh, after the service, I came up to him, and I'm like, oh, good word, Adrian, solid. When do you want to come to Portland? Because we're going to plant this church. And he's like, yeah, anytime, call me. And then we had this moment, and he locked his eyes with my eyes. He peered into my soul, and he asked me, Simon, it was really intense. He's super big. Said, Simon, what's your greatest fear? I said, this moment, what's happening right now? <laughs> this, this is, no, I said, he said, what's your greatest fear? And I'm like, ah, without, without even like having a moment to process it, I just blurted it out. I said, my greatest fear is failure. I'm going to fail. I'm going to, I'm going to be a failed church planter. I'm going to be a failed father. I'm going to be a failed husband. I'm going to be a failure as a man. I didn't say all of those things, but it was all wrapped up. That's my greatest fear. I'm going to fail. What's your greatest fear? What's your greatest fear? And don't tell me, like, fear itself, or I don't fear anything. I fear God alone. You're deluded, all right? Don't... <laughs> Everyone fears something. What's your greatest fear? God wants to meet you in that wine press. And begin to lead you out of the things happening in your own heart. Okay, so he's in the wine press. He's hiding. Fear, shame, all the things, identity stuff. 
God meets him. He calls him mighty man of valor. I love you. I have a plan for your life. I want to do great things through you. No way. I'm too small. I'm too weak. I'm nothing. I can't believe it. I need a sign. First order of business. What does God do next? He tells Gideon, I want you to tear down your father's altar. The altar that had been erected to worship Baal. Can we get the next slide up, please? There he is, an ancient uh, relic, a picture of Baal. He's got the horns coming out of his head. He's holding the, uh, the Asherah, Asherah pole in one hand, and he's holding another little, like, mini-god. You can't really see it, but it's like a kind of a, another figure that looks like an idol standing on a sea. Um, Baal in sort of the ancient Midianite world or that region of, of, of the world, Canaan, this was their Zeus, Baal. Uh, he was actually known as the Lord of heaven and earth. It's ironic if you do just like a little like basic Wikipedia study of Baal and sort of how he was worshipped or how the ancients understood this particular Canaanite god, he sounds almost identical to the God of the Hebrews. They even refer to him as the Lord of heaven and earth. He was who they prayed to and cried out when, when they needed salvation, rescue from oppressors or produce. He was the God of um, the sky. In some pictures, he's depicted as holding a lightning rod because he was the one who decided if it was going to rain and if you would have good crops that year. His, uh, his counterpart was the goddess Asherah, who was sort of the, the fertility goddess. So they would often go hand in hand because in order to even survive in the ancient world, you needed to produce offspring and crops, those kind of things. So there it is. There's Baal. First order of business. We've got to deal with your idol. So the night I was in that meeting back on my campus, and I was listening to this guy talk about how God loves me and he has a plan for my life, um, about halfway through his talk, I knew that he was going to do something like, like at the end of his talk, like, hey, if you want to get right with God tonight, I want you to slip up your hand and say a prayer. Or something like that. I could feel it coming. Yeah, have you ever been to that meeting? If you want to get right with God, slip up your hand and say this prayer. I had been in that meeting. I, I knew the deal. I saw it coming. You know what he did? At the end of his talk, so as I was feeling this, like, this weight, this sense of like heaviness and hope simultaneously, like, like God was like, just dealing with me. He got to the end of this talk. You know what he did? Instead of saying, hey, everyone close your eyes, bow your heads. If you want to go out with God, slip up your hand in secrecy. You know what he did? Everyone's eyes were open. All heads were up. He said, if you want to get right with God tonight, I want you to stand up right where you're, you're seated. Just stand up. And I was like, oh my gosh. This is the worst. Like, and so you know what I did? I stood up. I was the only one in the room. It was kind of embarrassing. I'm like, oh my gosh, like everyone's looking at me. But I knew what I needed to do, so I stood up. 
And he did lead me in a prayer. And I prayed it. And I meant it. And then he let me sit down. And then the guy who had like kind of talked me into coming into the meeting in the first place, he came up to me right after the meeting. His name was Dan Roseblade. He ended up becoming one of my best friends and, and, and helped me and taught me and encouraged me. He said, hey, I saw you stand up tonight. I'm like, yeah, everyone saw me stand up, dude. Like, <laughs> And you know what I did? So I left that meeting. We exchanged details, Dan and I. And I left that meeting, and I went straight to my girlfriend's house. Some, some, this is going to trip you out, what I'm about to share with you. Some of you have heard me share this story before. I left that meeting. No one told me, like, what to do. Dan said, hey, like, do you have a Bible? Great. Here's my phone number. Call me in the morning. That was, like, the extent of, like, discipleship that night. Get a Bible. Call me in the morning. I left that meeting, and I felt like the Spirit of God say, go to your girlfriend's house because I want to deal with your idol. So I went straight to my girlfriend's house. Sweet girl. She's dead now. She died of mouth cancer a few years ago. Kara was her name. We'd been in a serious relationship uh, for about a year. We actually lived together for, for a while. Um, not at that point, but I went straight to her house, and I said, Kara, I was at this meeting, and um, this is going to sound so weird, but I gave my life to Jesus tonight. And she kind of looked at me like, that's very weird. But she was also, like, oddly encouraging. She's like, oh, like, good for you. Kind of condescending, also encouraging. Like, oh, good for you, weirdo. And I said, so, anyways, um, I just needed to let you know that you and I, we, we got to, um, <clears throat> I'm breaking up with you. I, um, I really, really want to do this Jesus thing. And uh, I, I don't know how I know this. But I feel like the only way I'm going to be able to do this is if I stop. I don't think I said it this way, but essentially, if I don't stop worshiping you and our relationship and the security that I get from this, I don't know if I'm ever going to learn how to worship Jesus. And so I broke up with my girlfriend. It was crazy. You're welcome. That's my wife. You're welcome. The first order of business, God wants to help us sort through our idols. God did love Gideon and had this incredible plan for his life. And somehow it, it had everything to do with like, who was Gideon going to trust? Where would he find his security? To whom would he look for that sense of courage that he would need? The identity that God was, was wanting to form in him. If he was to become, actually become a mighty man of valor, God was going to have to do something on the inside. First order of business. Let's tear down Baal. We've got to get rid of this idol. We've got to deal with your allegiance to whom you look for, for security. Because let's face it, this God is not working out for you. It makes sense that you would have begun to worship this thing. Gosh, in a lot of ways, worshiping Baal 
feels, looks, sounds like trusting God. In a lot of ways, the sort of affection of the security that I was looking for in my relationship with my girlfriend at that time, it felt like, but this is, this is love. Surely this is God's plan that I would experience love. And it looked, sounded, felt, felt in so many ways like, of course, this is, this is God's best for me. But it was a slight counterfeit. And so God said, let's tear it down. Let's deal with it. And I didn't tear her down. I wasn't like, devil lady, get away from me. Like, nothing like that. It was like very hard. It was like, man, you're wonderful. I love you so much. And this is just super, super hard for me. And I want to remain friends and all the things. But I've got to like, I've got to figure out how I'm going to begin worshiping Jesus. And thus began the journey. So, Gideon, under the, um, under the protection, under the anonymity of night, Gideon goes and tears down the altar of Baal, his dad's altar. Um, it, it, we're told that he was too afraid to do it during the day, so he waited till it was night, and he snuck, and he tore this altar down. The next day, his dad gets up, he sees what's happened, he realizes it's his son, um, all of the men in the town, apparently, um, which Gideon was afraid of, find out what happened. And they go to his dad and they says, where's your boy? We're going to kill him. He's tore down the village altar. We're going to kill him. Where is he? And his dad, this is an unexpected twist. Apparently it was his dad's altar. And his dad said, hang on a second. If you're so convinced that this God is who or what he says he is, then let Baal contend for himself. Leave the boy alone. His dad actually steps up to bat for him. Let Baal contend for himself if he is what we believe him to be. You know what happens next? Verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and then camped in the valley of Jezreel like locusts in abundance as the sand that is on the seashore. That's called um, spiritual backlash. I'm going to tear down the altar. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm going to be zealous. I'm going to go all in for Jesus. And, and I will just live happily ever after. Nope. Let me know if that's your story. I've not experienced that to be true so far. Tears down the altar. Let Baal contend for himself. All right. Here comes the horde. All of the people of the east converge in the valley of Jezreel, and they're like a swarm of locusts, too numerous to even count. And we're told, but the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet. What does that mean? The Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. You read about this uh, clothing in the Spirit uh, all throughout the Bible. It starts all the way back in um, the book of Genesis. When the original humans, our ancient 
father and mother, as it were, Adam and Eve, were clothed by God. Clothed by the Spirit. Apparently, um, whatever that felt like in that moment, as Gideon faced this kind of uh, demonic backlash, as he saw the horde descend into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he was emboldened. He rose up in courage and he sounded the trumpet. He sounded the trumpet and that was the signal for all of Gideon's people to gather, to rally, to go to battle with him. Um, it's interesting though. So all throughout this story, Gideon is having these like moments with God. Gideon is, is like hearing God speak and then he's talking back to God. And we'll talk more about that in a second. But like there's a lot of like dialogue between Gideon and God. And, and Gideon tells, or God tells Gideon to do some specific things along the way. Um, this is one of the things that he did not tell Gideon to do. Um, it would seem in this sort of uh, emboldening moment as, as Gideon is experiencing this sort of like uh, the, this clothing in the spirit, he assumes it's sort of his natural inclination that this is the moment of victory. Here's the horde. Now I'm feeling emboldened by the spirit. So let me blow the trumpet and rally the troops. And somehow we're going to like, we're going to achieve a victory in battle. We're told, or rather we're not told, that that's what God told Gideon to do. He just thinks that, well, surely this is the way victory will be won. They've got 1,000 people. We'll get 2,000 people. They have a horde. We'll amass our own. You've got guns. We've got bigger ones. You have a budget. Let's triple it. Bigger, better, smarter, more. Surely that's the answer. And that's, as far as I read it, kind of what's happening in that moment. Are you guys tracking with me? Are you, are you connecting with this, this story at all? Have, okay, so let me put it, so let, me, let me break it down a little bit. You're facing your, uh, your giant. Hey, God's met you in your wine press. And he's saying, so I see something better. I do have a plan for your life. Not only am I going to make you into something that you're really struggling to believe is even possible. I'm going to work through you to deliver the many. And of course, you, like most of us, begin to think, well, okay, great. So let's, uh, let's get it done. Let's get it done. Um, we're going to need a building. Um, we're going to need a whole lot more people than this. Uh, the budget's going to need some work. We begin to go through all of the things that we think, surely this is what victory looks like. If we're going to change the city, if we're going to see like my family line uh, healed and set on a new course, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to take something a bit like what I see the enemy doing. We're going to need numbers. I'm going to need to read more books. I'm going to need to become more edited. And all the different things, bigger, better, smarter, more, 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 more. And this is obviously, as far as I can tell, what Gideon is thinking. Let's, um, 
Let's get all of these things. Let's rally the troops. And this is how the victory will be won. But if you've read the story, you know that God has very, very different plans. Gideon sounds the trumpet, rallies the army, and then God proceeds to systematically reduce the army from 32,000. That's quite, quite a rally cry. To 300. 32,000 volunteer soldiers show up when Gideon sounds the trumpet. You know, it's ironic. Even after the 32,000 come to his call, Gideon is still asking God for a sign, which is a telltale sign in itself. You know that something's not quite aligning with God's vision for victory when even after you've amassed the 32,000, you have the building, you have the people, you have all the things you think will assure success and you're still wondering. You still feel insecure deep down inside. God, I'm going to need another sign I'm still um, not sure this is going to work out God was doing something um, quite different this is uh, the true making of greatness 32,000 is reduced to 1,000, which then is reduced to a mere 300. God's not looking for an army. God's not looking to somehow match the enemy. God's teaching Gideon how to trust. Despite the odds, despite his own emotional reality, God wants Gideon to trust him, to trust him. Gideon is still afraid. Up until the very end. Let me read to you um, in verse nine of chapter seven, after God has dwindled this massive army that Gideon had assembled down to just the 300. It says in chapter 7, verse 9, that same night the Lord said to Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go with your servant, Purah, and you shall hear what the enemy says, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So he went down with his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in camp after everything. It's quite a long story. I'm condensing it significantly. After everything that happens, on the eve of the battle, God speaks to Gideon once again. And he says, this is the night. This is the night you're going to defeat the Midianites once and for all. 
But if you're still afraid, take your servant, Purah, and go down. Listen to what the enemy is saying. See, I think sometimes if you've ever heard this story told or Gideon preached, when I've heard it, it usually goes something like this. He starts out as this very insecure young man hiding out in a wine press. God meets him. He speaks identity to him. He says, actually, this is who you are. You're mighty. You're a man of valor. You're a champion. You're going to deliver God's people. And then thus begins the journey of like he starts to get greater and greater and greater and greater. And then at the climax, he only has 300 men, but it doesn't matter because he's now become that mighty man of valor. And he goes and he charges, and that's not actually how the story plays out at all. Because on the very night of the battle, God meets with Gideon once again. He says, but if you're still afraid, and Gideon's like, yeah, very much so. More so now than ever. Okay. Then take your servant, Pura, and go. You're going to hear something that will empower you once and for all. This isn't, this isn't the story of the underdog becoming Rocky, becoming the champion, overcoming all odds. This is the story of a very, this is my story. This might be your story of a normal, insecure person who has their own inner battles going on, who's decided I'm going to tear down the altar and trust Jesus, only I'm terrified now more today than ever. I've not yet arrived, only I've concluded, but actually, it's not even about me. This isn't about me getting all of the answers. This isn't about me becoming the smartest person in the room. This isn't about me finally, like, Becoming the great leader, the charismatic person that I always thought that I should be. This is about me realizing that this God who's got me on this journey is teaching me to trust the greater one. This isn't about me becoming the hero of the story. This isn't about Gideon finally becoming the great man that he had always hoped that he would become. This is about a normal guy is looking at the horde thinking, this isn't going to work out. It wasn't when we had 32,000. It certainly isn't now. And he realizes that this God, his power is perfected in weakness. When I am weak, he is strong. This isn't about me. This is about God teaching me to trust him. What do you think about that? How uncomfortable is that? But I wanted to be the hero. I wanted to be that guy. Like, I don't, I don't need, like, deity status. But it would be so awesome if I could just finally arrive and feel like, man, I am the man. Just look at me. Look how smart I sound. Finally got those pecs that I always dreamed about. No. It's not that story. It's a better story. The moment of victory comes at the moment of greatest vulnerability. The moment of victory comes at the moment of deepest trust. This is the way of the cross. 
God overcoming evil, not by me becoming stronger or the church gaining more control, but by sons and daughters acknowledging their weakness and surrendering their lives into the hands of our merciful Father. This is the way of the cross. This is how we experience greatness. God overcoming evil, not by me becoming stronger, but by me learning to surrender to my merciful Father and my weakness. And then I become strong. I become strong in the power of his might. Um, I had some like practicals, but I think we might want to just end there.